Hello and welcome to today's Ed Can Help podcast with me, Edward Sim. This morning, I have the great pleasure of talking to Dr. Az Hakim, consultant psychiatrist. Dr. Hakim is an author, researcher and clinician with special experience and expertise in the treatment of gender dysphoria. I found his perspectives very interesting and his robust arguments persuasive. If you're listening and you have a very different point of view, which is evidence and experience based, and would like to present it in this podcast, please get in touch. I'd love to talk to you. So as you and I have known each other for, oh, I don't know, 10 years maybe at least. And I think that originated from your clinical practice in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And that was where my psychotherapy interest lay. But since then, I know for a fact, because I look at Twitter, etc., etc., that other areas of clinical practice and interest are really occupying most of your time these days. What are they at the moment? Well, there's my clinical practice and then there's my Twitter activity. And I suppose most of my clinical work is depression, anxiety, professional burnout, OCD, trauma, um, various forms of anxiety. And, you know, burnout, stress for busy working professionals. But on Twitter and on social media, what I've become known for is the work that I was doing a lot more around 20 years ago onwards, which was specialist psychotherapy for gender dysphoria. And that's an analytic exploratory type of work for people presenting with confusion, dissatisfaction or unhappiness about their gender identity. So what these days is coined under the umbrella term trans but it's actually lots of different things and whilst I hardly do any of that work now it is most of what my academic and published and research work has been about and I did this you know I've been doing this for 22 years before it was ever became cool and I was doing it writing academic papers in journals which no one reads apart from the person who published it but then since I discovered Twitter three years ago, I've become more accessible to the general public. And so I've got quite a big following of what we call gender critical people. Who and they, the Gender critical just means critical of a, the gender ideology, which is uh, quite uh, apparent these days. And gender ideology is about sort of you can be whatever you want to be, whatever you believe yourself to be. And gender critical is more based in science evidence and biology and so that's what I'm also very known for but it doesn't reflect the work I do most of my work isn't to do with gender but my research work has been and the books that I've published and the papers I've published have been about that. I see so this is a sort of stupid question actually no maybe it isn't. We like stupid questions. (laughs) Well so where do you think the whole trans debate is going if we bumped into each other in 10 years time what do you suspect the situation or the picture will be from where we're at now 
Well, I think we're heading into a bit of a car crash. And let's rewind a bit to before the term trans became in widespread use. So if you rewind about 20 years ago, when I started doing all this, you had different groups of people. So you had people who were called transsexuals, mm -hmm. and they were people who would have the belief that they would be better off if they were the opposite sex to what they were. So men believing they should be women, women believing they should be men, and they wanted a permanent change, and this was something that they that they had believed for quite a while. So that's one group. The second group are transvestites, and these are people who don't believe that they should be the opposite sex, but they get some sort of satisfaction from temporarily residing within the external appearance or the vestiges, transvestite, of that sex. And in my book, available in, in good bookshops on Amazon, Trans, uh, in my book I describe 11 different types of transvestite mm. according to whether the person is getting satisfaction just by passing as the opposite sex temporarily, whether they get satisfaction from the clothes themselves, so there might be a, an exciting aspect to the clothing, like the, the type of clothing, the texture of the clothing, people who may be a bit more sadomasochistic and they like the idea of obviously not being a woman when dressing up as a woman. So you might get these um, rather emasculated, gender un underconfident men who, when dressed up poorly, resembling a woman, get taunted and jeered by people pointing at, at them and saying, that's a man. So they get their, their, their male sex more validated and so there's lots of different types of these people varying from how comfortable satisfying exciting and what sort of exciting whether it's sexual or not so the massive range within transvestites and and then you get the autogynophiles which is a which is a fetish and the autogynophile is a man who has sexual fantasies so it's a sexuality sexual fantasies about having female bodily bits so they may get really turned on by the idea of having a vagina or breasts. But over, over time, these have all become lumped together and called trans, which is really unhelpful because they're completely distinctly different groups of people. And they, are all, they may all be dressing up as women or men, vice versa, but they're doing so for very different reasons. And by, by clumping them all together as trans, makes people think that they're all the same, which they're not. And that's the unhelpful bit. Yeah, so a massive overgeneralization for people who have got quite specific and specifically different... Yeah, I mean, nobody talks about transvestites anymore. And if you look at actually the population, transsexuals have always been very, very, very small in terms of, you know, numbers of people, whereas there's always been a huge swathe of, of men who were transvestite, but nobody talks about transvestites anymore. They're all called trans. So you presume that every transvestite is, is a transsexual, which is a complete misnomer. So presumably transvestites, there's no reason to suppose their number would have dropped. No, but they're all being subsumed under but trans. Do you think that your average transvestite would now be feeling under pressure not to just be what was historically known as a transvestite 
let's let's just say a man dressing up as a woman. But do you think that there's a there's a sort of cultural pressure that they now think of themselves as a transsexual? Definitely for a lot of them, because they 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 find themselves enjoying wearing clothes of the opposite sex. They do a bit of Googling and not much comes up for transvestite, but they will come up with the whole trans and trans pathways, medical interventions, and they're led to believe that actually they're born the wrong sex and they need to change sex. Whereas actually they don't, because actually they enjoy the temporary residing in the external vestiges of the opposite sex rather than a permanent physical change. So the, the person who would have been transvestite but then believes themselves to be transsexual and then presents for gender reorientation, um, this may be very, very difficult for them. Yeah, because historically there were the transvestite would have satisfied their, let's call it pastime, by going to things like the Beaumont Society, I don't even know whether the Beaumont Society still exists, where men would meet up once a month or something and dress up and go out and whatever. Hmm. And now they're sort of being led to believe that they're trans and then they're put on this pathway of hormones and surgery, which is not really the solution for them. And they, they're more likely to then have regrets. And often when it's too late, they've made irreparable changes to their body. and. When I ran my psychotherapy service, which was the only psychotherapy service in the NHS, I started it single-handedly, and I ran it for 12 years until I left the NHS. 26% of all the patients coming to my specialist gender psychotherapy service were people who were post-operative regretters. So there were men who'd had bits chopped off, had hormones, and then thought, oh gosh, what have I done? I'm living a, a, as a bit of a fraud. So there, there is a problem. And the problem with, with physical interventions for, for gender conditions is that there's no follow-up studies. So, you know, gender reassignment was invented by John Hopkins University in America. They, they did this follow-up study, which showed that the results were so poor that they abandoned the project. Whereas gender clinics around the country now, they don't offer any follow-up. They don't follow up the patients to see whether they're happy years later. They presume they will be happy because they're given what they want. But we know that actually a large proportion of them aren't happy. Yeah, I mean, I think recently there, there have been some cases in the media of, of I think they were various men... The teenagers? Yeah. So the, the teenagers are another thing. So on the one hand, you think, well, adults, well, they can make decisions for themselves, they've got capacity, and if they regret it, well, they, they've made a, a decisions as adults. But with kids, what we're seeing is there's something called... ROGD, which is rapid onset gender dysphoria. And there's been a massive upspike in those in recent years. So in in the last few years, there's been a is it four thousand or eight thousand fold increase. And they're mainly girls who are then uh, presenting saying that they want to be men. And they're girls all sorts of ages. They're also boys as well, but they're they're, they're mainly girls. And this is really concerning because these are children. Children don't really know what it is to be a man or a woman. And they're, they're, they're generally gender non-conforming kids who we all know would otherwise end up just being gay without any gender problem at all. It's, it, teenage years are a period where you 
challenge the normative frameworks. You, you're subversive, you're experimenting with who you are, what you are, and that's totally normal. You know, so when, when, when we were teenagers, we were, up until the advent of social media, your identity and youth subculture was based in music. So prior to social media, your your youth subculture identity was music-based. So you had punks, you had goths. I was a post-punk goth. You had all sorts of things based in music. And your identity was all about music and the bands you liked. And you'd, you'd cover your school Lever Arch files with clippings from NME. And, you know, and it was cool. And I remember when... You know, Jenny turned up at school with backcombed hair and eyeliner, uh, and we all said, "Wow, you're so cool! What what is this?" And she said, "I'm a goth." Within two weeks, there was an epidemic of goths in North Wales where I grew up. So we all became goths. And if you look at the photos of us in in our sixth form or fifth form, we looked a bit like transvestites. We weren't being transvestites. We we were being what we thought were cool goths. And as my very sensible parents knew. This was a phase. All my parents came back was when I was doing um, well enough for my A-levels and they ignored the fact that I looked like some strange child with vertical hair and eyeliner. And um, they humoured me, as, as parents should do with these things. And lo and behold, I am now approaching 50. I don't have back-end hair. I don't have any hair. And um, it's all a bygone thing, apart from I've got skulls on my socks and my ties. Um, so the, when social media came along, um, youth subculture stopped being about music. And, so, and social media allowed people to have their identities based in their social media profiles and who they were linked to and all that sort of stuff. So if you, one of the things I've said, which I've often quoted, is that all these kids who are now presenting as trans or non-binary, this is just goth mark five. And my trajectory of goth is as follows, and people who have heard me before are probably sick of hearing this, but goth mark one was post-punk, so it was very severe, very harsh, very punk, very, very subversive. Goth mark two was a bit happier, so it's been things like when The Cure came along, happy little goth songs. Goth mark three, they, they discovered colour and they were a bit more shoegazy, they were sort of like, um, you know, Cocteau Twins and that sort of music and then around after goth mark 3 there was social media and that's when goth mark 4 was emo so emotionally unstable people with funny colored hair piercings and some self-harm and then goth mark 5 is is gender non-binary and trans so it's just a youth subculture so when you have and what we typically see is a, a child um comes home from school and says oh there's someone in the class who's identifying as trans and non-binary and then within weeks the whole you know, huge swathes of the school of identifying as trans non-binary. It's just the same as when we all identified as goths. But the problem is now that because they're saying it's a gender thing, is that now they're being considered to have a medical condition. So any kid that's saying, oh, I don't want to be a girl, I want to be a boy, rather than someone saying, really, what's bad about being a girl? Or what's so good about being a boy? They go oh, yes, you've got this medical condition. Well, we need to get you to a gender clinic and then you will, it's obviously a medical condition, you're born in the wrong body. Well, don't worry, we'll stop your puberty, we'll stop your your progressing into your your sex and then you can have gender reassignment to give you the body that you, you should have. So rather than saying to kids, no body is wrong, there's nothing wrong with your body, we're saying your body is wrong, let's get rid of your body, which is 
seems a complete abandonment of any actual appropriate care for these kids. And you're colluding with something which is not really a medical condition, it's a subcultural identity. They're just being subversive and um, they should be allowed to be subversive without having, you know, a lifetime treatment of hormones and surgery. Do you think that that kind of gritty subversive element through music that's just got totally lost. So, so music is just music now for kids. Yeah. Their identity is in their social media profiles. So mm-hmm. typically if I see a young, and I only see people from 17 up for gender, um, and, and they might be a gender non-conforming, what used to be called a tomboy, and they're attracted to other women. And I say, well, doesn't that make you a lesbian? They go, no, 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 no. I say, well, do you know any lesbians? No. Do you know any famous lesbians? No. Do you know any trans men? Yes, yes, yes. And they'll, they'll, they'll reel off all these trans men on social media, these, these social media influences. Mm. And I suppose, you know, what they, what they are sort of saying is, why would I identify with being a lesbian? Whatever that is, I don't know what they are. When you can be this sort of big, masculine, hairy muscle trans man. It's a bit like transforming oneself into a heterosexual superhero. Mm. So they don't have the shackles of being gay. They don't have you know, to be identified with something they don't know what it is, but they can identify with this new, big, improved version, and everyone goes along with them. So why on earth wouldn't they? And the problem is, is years down the line, they may have this sense of, oh, my goodness, what have I done? I'm a bit of a fraud. Because, you know, you can't change sex. All you can do is hormonally manipulate people, which is then for life, and then change their bodies to sort of, look a bit like or less like men or women but you know you can't really change sex and all the regretters I've had and met and talked to and I have lots of detransitioner followers is they feel that they've been hoodwinked into the idea that they can change sex but then realize that they can't and that they went from feeling not very authentic as their biological sex to then feeling not very authentic as their new transept. I had a lot of sympathy for lesbians who've... The argument that I've heard is that with the, the transitioning of men to women who would then become women who are, who are lesbians... Trans women. Yeah. Is that this is the latest manifestation of what you might call male domination or subversion of women, namely now that men are saying oh well you know not only can we do everything run the world run business run everything else but actually we we can become women as well yeah um, and if you think about it so going back to what i said before about the majority of people who say the majority of men who want to address is a transvestite not transsexual so it wouldn't surprise you to hear that the majority of people who do have hormones and surgery male to female choose to keep their penis so most trans men have a penis And you can understand that as growing breasts is a way of adding on a piece, almost like adding on a piece of clothing for the transvestite. They don't want to get rid of their penis. They they, they want to look like women, but keep their male sex. So so the problem is, is that because legislation doesn't distinguish between transsexuals, transvestites, or to gynophiles, it just talks about trans, is that anyone who says, I'm a man and a woman, can be 
treated as such, validated as such, and have the authority to function as such, including uh, going into women's spaces, um, and uh, without questions asked. So for the for those who are on the more fetishistic side of the spectrum, for those who are sexually excited and turned on by by looking like the opposite sex but not believing that they are one, then you have this minefield because you have people like and I, and I worked in a sexual perversion clinic for twelve years, so we've had people who who do get off and excited on the idea of infiltrating into, getting into um, women's spaces in order to then violate those spaces. But the, but the general public are led to believe that this, this never happened. It's, it's, it, they only want a quiet life, but they're not differentiating between the transsexuals, the transvestites and the fetishistic people in the autogynophiles, because there are a huge wave of people who aren't transsexual, who will be piggybacking on these opportunities in order to be able to do that. And yet, it's, I mean, you've put that very clearly, now I understand it better. So generally, there's a kind of umbrella of, oh no, we couldn't think of anything bad relating to this area. Everybody's genuine, everybody's... Yeah, totally. Well, no, I mean, they're gen not genuine is the wrong word, but, you know, every, every Well-meaning. Yeah, yeah. well-meaning. Everybody's yeah. a well-meaning yeah. person. But then if you look at all these people who, I mean, it's every day that you see an account of somebody often a prisoner who's maybe, you know, serving a sentence for crimes against women like rape or whatever, who then suddenly identify as trans female, are put into a female prison, and lo and behold, what happens? They then commit sexual assaults on the women. And this unquestioning adherence to, oh, trans women are women, no questions asked, doesn't really get to the detail of what do they mean by trans women? What what do they what do they think a woman is? What why do they think they're trans women? And the the other problem is that those of us who have worked and specialised in the area and done loads of research, loads of work, and and seen hundreds and thousands of these people in great depth, if we were to ask, as we had previously done all the time, what do you mean by you're a woman? What is a woman? you'll get very superficial responses about long hair, dresses, makeup, all the very superficial things, nothing about what it is to be a woman, because they can't answer that. And to question that, even with children, is now considered to be conversion therapy. And you're at risk of being, you know, fed to the lions if, lo and behold, you're to question anyone's gender. And this is very much a sort of a stonewall-led political movement. And so those of us who have worked in this area for ages and done useful work and, and you know, helped a lot of people, we're now put off by doing that work because we'll be held to account by the activists who don't want anyone's gender questioned, no one to have exploration, and everyone is just to be affirmed. And affirmation sounds like a good thing because, you know, affirming, good. But all affirmation does is if someone is confused and they go, well, maybe I should be a woman, is affirmation is to say, well, yes, you are a woman and and go along with it. And all my regretters said, why did anyone ask me? Why didn't anyone ask me what I what I was going on about? What, you know, I said that I was a woman. Why didn't anyone ask me what I meant? But no one does. Well, some of us do, but we don't really feel comfortable now because the climate is so hostile. And uh, those of us who have done that find ourselves sort of being at the wrath of the activists who make our lives hell. It sounds absolutely impossible. And, and we know just from the general media, anybody who expresses opinion 
obviously JK Rowling's a good example. Anybody who expresses opinion which is contrary to the perceived Stonewall position is immediately cancelled, you cancelled, know. Yeah. an object of ridicule and yeah. hatred, which just seems... Um, well, I've talked, to, I've talked to social workers and teachers who lost their jobs before standing up for biological reality because they hadn't pandered to the whole, there are a hundred genders. I mean, there are no hundred genders. What are these hundred genders? It's ridiculous. But to question that is to be some sort of heretic. And unfortunately, most institutions have been captured by the ideology. So, you know, you've got civil servants being put on training courses to learn the hundred different genders. It's amazing how a smallish proportion of you within a range of the spectrum that you kind of outlined, how that has succeeded in completely capturing the argument, closing down dissent. Well, I think the useful word that you just said is spectrum. And, and I've argued that within those with a um, very firmly held transsexual belief that they're the wrong gender is that the majority of the ones I've seen anyway, clinically, would be on the autistic spectrum. And if you think about people on the, on the spectrum, the qualities they have are very black and white thinking, very rigidly held firm beliefs. And uh, if you don't agree with them, then they can get very angry. They're otherwise high functioning. So you've got people who are very vocal, very angry, and um, very determined, and they manage to get into all echelons of everything and have nuclear all-out meltdowns when their way isn't achieved. So the common example is if you don't agree, then you don't understand and you're phobic. Whereas you you could be understanding and you might just be lodged in reality science and biology and believe there are only two sexes and that people can't change sex. But they will then decide that you're phobic, it's hatred, and and it, it gets out of control. So it's a bit like flat earthers taking over the world and those who believe that the earth isn't flat have to keep quiet about it. I think that maybe one feature of all this is, I mean, you're putting the case very elegantly and persuasively, that the trouble is other people, you know, tend to be coming at it from a sort of fundamentalist religious perspective, that kind of stuff, which in a way just doesn't help. But I think the accusations from the activists are that those who are gender critical are all far-right religious fanatics, whereas yeah. the reality is not the case at all. The majority of gender critical people are very centrist left Guardian readers. Mm. I mean, I know you know I don't read The Guardian, but the majority of the people are very sort of left of centre, reasonable people lodged in science and reality. So when a parent might be faced with their son or daughter age 12, 13. Well, sometimes it's four. Four, yes. Four. four. So when I worked in kids at Tavistock, we had people, children brought in at four. And, you know, a four-year-old doesn't know anything. I mean, well, no. And Stonewall are now arguing this week that you can tell a child is trans at two. Two-year-olds don't know anything at all. They can barely string a sentence together speak. or read or write. So the, there's no way that a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a ten-year-old has any complicated nuanced understanding of what it is to be male or female. Their repertoire is based on 
who they've met or seen so far in life, who is male or female, usually their mother or father. And it might just be that they don't feel that they fit in with the versions of male or female that they've experienced to date. I mean, you and I both went to schools where there were certain versions of masculinity, which I suspect neither of us fitted into. And, you know, I was the the guy whose rugby shirt was pristine at the end of rugby, can't, couldn't stand the idea of rugby, even though I was in a Welsh school where rugby was all they wanted me to do. And, you know, I was sort of quite subversive. And But that wasn't about not being a boy. That was about not being that sort of boy. And you know now the the gender training which these activist organisations have got into schools are such that if you're gender non-conforming at all, the child is invited to consider whether they should be another sex, which is child abuse, I would say. Mm. I mean, I had a friend who said that their friend's daughter was very much a tomboy, uh, never thought that she was a boy, was happy being a girl, but, you know, was what we used to call tomboys. And the teacher, having done this invaluable piece of training, probably done by some activist organisation, said to this eight-year-old girl, you don't seem to fit in with the other girls. Have you ever considered that you should be a boy? I mean, that's grooming. That's child abuse grooming and a safeguarding issue. But I'm seeing this a lot. And a lot of my patients and friends have talked about how their children have been quite disturbed by teachers asking the child, to question whether they should be the sex they are. And I saw an exercise book of an eight-year-old and she was writing this quite disturbing, quite upsetting things in the book about, I like football, I'm not right as a girl, and why am I like this? And the parent asked her, what's this about? And she said that she just had a lesson on uh, gender from her school and was being led to believe that she wasn't quite right as a girl. And this is abhorrent, it's terrible. And and then you get these parents who have watched some Channel 4 documentary for 40 minutes and they think that they're an expert and they are convinced their child is born in the wrong body and they say to the child it's a medical condition. When I worked at Gibbs at the Tavistock, we had what I call a transsexogenic parent, which is the parent who then seems overly invested in the idea that their child is the wrong sex and encourages it, changes their name, buys them wigs, dresses them wrong and it sort of fuels it. Um, whereas other parents are very sceptical and sensible and they want the child to get help. Um, so the starting point is a feeling of not fitting in with the people, the very small population sample that they're with, and then how it's responded to. So what you'd ideally want is a teacher or a parent to say, oh, really, what's wrong with being a boy? What's wrong with being a girl? What is a boy? What is a girl? And help expand the repertoire in that child's mind as to what it is to be a boy or a girl and not tell them that their body is wrong. I wonder if, yes, I get that. I wonder if, you know, so the women's football recently was a, was a great success. It's only a question of time before the, the, the women's football team is entirely populated by trans females. Well, if the rules allow it yes but but my point was so here is a bunch of women i have no idea whether they're trans women or biological women but let's just say they're basically biological women so they're setting a good example playing football lifting the sport out of a traditionally male dominated thing so i mean that gives me encouragement to think that it's an example of 
you can be a woman, you can love football, doesn't mean you're a man. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know. So we should be encouraging. Um, so I encourage all my gender patients, as I have done, to be more subversive. The core of the transsexual mindset is that they're very, very, very conformative. So they, they have very rigid rules about um, sex and what sexes can do. Males can do this, women can do this. If I don't like this, therefore I must be the wrong one. It's very binary, black and white, autistic thinking. So I encourage them to be more subversive. So say, well, okay, what are these attributes that you associate with women or men that you like so much? Why can't you do them anyway whilst you're the sex that you are? And it's almost like they feel that I'm inviting them to transgress some forbidden boundary, but helping them to access all these variables or aspects or constructs as they are, eventually is liberating because they realise they can be whatever they want to be whilst being them without castrating yeah, themselves was, and chopping bits off. That was always the point from the sort of 1960s onward, kind of being who you are. It somehow just seems to have gone but, off track. So if you look at politically, so um, Stonewall, which was set up to champion same-sex attracted people's rights, so they achieved everything they needed to achieve when gay marriage came in. And then they had no more work to do. So they had a meeting and the meeting was either, should we disband and call it a day and call it a success or should we find a new cause? And some of the people there at HQ said, well, let's find a new cause. Let's promote uh, trans ideology. And some of them said, well, no, this is off piste. We're not happy with this. So the ones who weren't happy left and the ones who were remaining then their prime objective was transgender ideology. And the indecent thing is they didn't tell all their followers that this was the new remit. And so all these people and organisations who had supported Stonewall for their wonderful previous work in same-sex attracted people's rights, then presumed that this was still what they were doing and found themselves signing up to Stonewall's charter, which was this unelected political lobby group who, who then captured all these organisations and institutions. And they demanded that anyone who identifies themselves of any gender, and there are a hundred genders she respects as such, and it seems to have gone into some fantasy Narnia land, which bears no resemblance to reality. Yeah, well. But that's, but that's very um, politically incorrect to say so, apparently. Well, I think time will tell, won't it? Well, the, the number of meteoric rise of numbers of young people, teenagers, who are now accessing chemical castration. I say chemical castration because it's referred to as puberty blockers. It's very sanitised. So what they're being told is we can pause your puberty, allow you some extra thinking time, and if you'd like to go ahead with a sex change surgically, then you can. That's the false narrative. The real narrative is pausing puberty is a chemical castration. So we all know that Alan Turing and all the gay people in the war who were chemically castrated, isn't this awful? We go and watch films about it and we say how terrible it was. This is exactly the same as what we're doing to kids. So puberty blockers are chemical castration agents. They, yeah. they, they castrate someone chemically, hormonally. Um, and then, so if you have a child who is you know, sort of not very confident with their gender. They don't go through puberty because you've chemically castrated them. That can just reinforce their uncertainties. What we know is that almost just under 100% of all kids who go on puberty blockers or chemical castration then go on to surgical reassignment. 
So it's not just a harmless exercise. They go to cross-sex hormones. And when you have cross-sex hormones, it's not reversible. So if you're a girl, you've had a chemical castration, and then you have male hormones, your voice will break and you'll get a beard. And often that's not reversible. The other thing is, if you then go on to have a surgical sex change, then I don't want to be graphic, but I'm going to be. When you make a artificial vagina in a man, the length of the vagina is the same as the penis that you have because you invert the penis. So if you have this prepubescent boy, you're going to get a very, not very functioning, very small vagina. And this is the detail that people aren't aware of. And what we're going to have, um, I'm not the only clinician who thinks this, is you're going to have a huge swathe of people who are going to be castrated eunuch adults who feel that they've been misled into something which they then regret. Mm -hmm. And that's inevitable. And I estimate that will be in the next five to ten years. Yeah, it, it sounds like it's a train coming down the track. Yeah, and, and I suppose people need to decide what side of history they're going to be on. Are they going to be on the side of reality and science and evidence? Or are they going to be on the side of colluding with this magical cult-like notion of a hundred genders where, um, I mean, all these Labour MPs who've gone on record saying that women can have penises and, I mean, David Lammy, the Labour MP, said, with the right medication and surgery, men can have a cervix. I mean, I'm not sure whether David Lammy knows what a cervix is, but it's an entry to a womb, and there's there's nothing at the moment that can give men wombs. So yeah. um, there's a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of very woke jumping on the bandwagon trying to get brownie points by saying the right thing, but it is a concern, yeah. Well, we... Was this the podcast that we weren't going to get political? <laughs> we seem to have veered off, but well, that's fine, that's the, fine. The, the point is that listening to someone who actually knows what they're talking about and has been at the coalface of working with people who are confronted with these dilemmas, it's not something that we generally get to hear very much. So... And the I, thing is, when... When when I do talk to people, um, they realise actually you're talking common sense. And so they might think, oh, gender critical, that must mean they're transphobic. Not at all. Just, just because I don't believe that you can change sex and just because I don't believe certain things, that's based in a scientific way. I think trans women are trans women. And I think that there's a difference between a trans woman and a biological woman. And, you know, I believe... <laughs> Let's let's choose a different a different scenario. So you know other things we treat schizophrenia. Okay, I believe schizophrenia exists. Uh, I think it's an illness. That doesn't mean I'm phobic against schizophrenics or I don't like schizophrenic people. Schizophrenia, of course not. But I recognise what it is and I treat it. So I want to help and I want to treat people with gender problems. That doesn't mean I hate them or dislike them. But with the binary autistic mindset, if you don't agree with them, then you hate them. So. Why on earth would I spend so much of my academic and research and publishing interests with this population who I worked clinically with for many years if I didn't want to help them? Of course I want to help them. Mm. Um, but you know, many of us have been put off now because the trans activists have made our lives hell. So yes, I still do the work in terms of writing about it and talking about it, like on this, but day to day I much prefer to treat depression, anxiety, 
you know, burnout, ADHD, because the patient, the activists, then don't try and sort of, you know, murder you. Yes, you can quite see that it's it's a blessing not to be actually the object of hatred for... I mean, those of us who are gender critical and have done this work are on a hit list. And it's a bit of an accolade, because that, that film Kill Bill, hmm. um, so we're all on the hit list. But it sort of does put you off working in that field, so I prefer to write about it and talk about it. And now. yeah, in maybe five years' time, ten years' time, when there's, there's been a sea change in opinion, your thoughts clinical approach, patient care, will be more needed than ever. And the CAS review, which recently came out, which scrutinised the Tavistock Gender Service and found severe failings because they weren't collecting any evidence, they weren't doing data collection. That's been a wake-up call to gender services. And interestingly, with the data collection and evidence base, myself and my research team in the University of New South Wales, where I used to be, we developed uh, an outcome measuring tool for gender dysphoria. So not only does it detect gender dysphoria, it also detects beneficial change in terms of how stable and happy you are in your gender. It's the Gender Preoccupation and Stability Questionnaire, the GPSQ. It's a 14-item questionnaire. It takes about five minutes to fill in, and it can be used for any intervention, whether hormonal, medical, surgical, psychological, for gendered problems. And all these gender clinics were criticised for not having data collection. So I contacted the Tavistock, who now runs the adult and the child gender services. I said, look, I've invented the wheel for you. You don't have to do a lengthy piece of arduous um, clinical work to try, research work to try and invent a tool. I've invented it. It's free to use. You can use it. And I must have contacted them about 20 times. They've never responded, which is really strange. So it's, it's again, it's their head in the sand. And that is that just baffles me. That's beyond my understanding as to why these institutions that were criticised for not collecting data would not take up the offer of a free data gathering tool. Hmm. And I suspect maybe they're worried about what the outcomes would show. Well, you may be right, but time will tell. I'd like to thank you very much for my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Your thoughts. I think they will be kinds of useful perspectives that we could all do with here. Thank you.